Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 230 for January 7th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 83. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Do more and travel less with GoToMeeting. Make your next meeting a go-to meeting instead. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash security now. And by Astaro. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection, contact Astaro at astaro.com or call 877-4ASTARO for a free trial of an Astaro Security Gateway Appliance in your business. And by the new voice-activated sync, featuring hands-free calling, music and podcast search, and turn-by-turn navigation. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRide.com. It's time for Security Now, episode 230, the first episode of the new year. I won't say the new decade, because Steve Gibson's an engineer and he will quibble. Here he is, Steve Gibson, our host, security expert, uh, the man at GRC.com, the creator of Spinrite. Hey, Steve. Yes, are we numbering our years from zero <laughs> or from one? We did a, a decade-ender uh, twit last week, and I started off by saying, I know it's not the end of the decade, but if I do a end-of-decade twit in December 2010, I'm going to get far oh. more mail than if I do it in 2009. So I'm doing it now. <laughs> We moved to two digits, but the decade will end in another year because yeah, we started interesting. with one. Well, as a as an assembly language programmer, right. and actually any any programmer, there's there's always the this question of are you counting from zero or are you counting from one? And it's one of the things you learn as you mature as a programmer is that first of all that matters. Yes, and you know many bugs have come right. from someone saying, let's see. If the maximum count is five, then that means I have five things. No, you have six things because, yep. you know, zero is a thing. So Programmers learn that pretty early, I think. I know yeah. I did. That's like the first thing you learn. Or they go into the social sciences. <laughs> yeah, they, yes. They just say, okay, I can't oh, do this. I don't understand. <laughs> Steve just burned all you social scientists. <laughs> which which I am. So there we go. Uh, we're going to get to, we have some great questions. I know you've collated some uh, questions from our uh, listeners, 10 wonderful ones. And we should say, if you have a question for Steve, you can go to his website, grc.com slash feedback and ask a question. Steve loves those questions in every other oh, show. So good, Leo. I just, yeah. we have got great, great listeners who Absolutely. are, you know, taking the opportunity to, to send stuff back. I love it. Now we recorded this a little bit ahead because as we are talking, Steve, uh, Kiki and I and the entire gang are in Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show. Yep. So if you're listening to this on the 7th or the 8th or the 9th or the 10th, don't forget you can go to live.twit.tv and watch our live coverage. We're, I'm really trying to bring the, the big Consumer Electronics Show to your living room or to your den or wherever you watch it because... You don't have to travel. We're going to show you all the interesting, cool stuff. We've got all of our team out there. Ryan Shrout, 
from um, PC Perspective, Ryan Block from uh, GDGT, uh, Will Harris, Dr. Kiki, uh, Dick Bartolo, Paul Thorat. Of course, I'm there. And we do thank our friends at Sync for making this possible. They're sponsoring the trip down there. In fact, they lent us a uh, Lincoln MKT to drive all the gear down, featuring that great Sync. In fact, if, you, if you're in Vegas, catch me. Pull me aside. Say, I want to see the Sync. I'll give you a demo in the Lincoln. Sync is that incredible system exclusively in Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles that listens to your voice. You keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, but you can make calls on your mobile phone. And have, by the way, it'll take it's like 20 different phones. Find and play music and podcasts on your mobile devices, whether it's an iPod, iPhone, Zune. You get turn-by-turn navigation, real-time traffic, weather, the works. You can find out more by going to SyncMyRide.com. That's the website for Sync owners, but they have some great videos there explaining how Sync works. Or better yet, go to your local Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealer and say, I want to test drive, not, not the car, the Sync. They have announced at CES some big things. The next generation Sync, which comes out this year, will have Wi-Fi. Now, this is an interesting thing. Not It puts Wi-Fi in the car. So people with their Wi-Fi devices now have wireless access to the Internet as you drive along. Oh, is that oh, cool? That is very cool. These guys, I, I really admire Ford because they're, they, they get it. They're, they must be geeks in there because they get it. Uh, the other thing that they've just announced that they're going to do is you listen to your HD radio. It has an HD radio. Uh, it will iTunes tag songs. You can press a button and say, remember that song, up to 100 songs. When you connect your iPod, it then syncs over to your iPod. And when you get back to your computer, it'll say, well, these are the songs that you were listening to that you liked. You want to buy them? So you keep dragging the songs as you I mean, what they're doing is they're, they're automating the car. They're putting powerful technology in the car so you can get stuff done. You can listen to text messages on compatible phones. You can even send text messages. I just love it. Find out more at SyncMyRide.com. And we thank you so much to Sync for bringing us to CES. You can also subscribe to our CES coverage on iTunes or just go to twit.tv. Actually, all the information is there. You can listen to the shows, uh, watch us live, and... Uh, and participate. Thanks to Sync. SyncMyRide.com. Steve, we're going to launch right into it, right? So we may not have flying cars, but we have all the rest of the technology. We're getting that, there. That George Jetson and Leroy or Elroy or Jane and everybody. <laughs> Meet George <had>. Jetson. <laughs> Jane, his wife, his dog, Astro. Astro, yes. Astro. You know, it's, uh, the Ford Flex has this uh, bliss system in it that will tell you if, if somebody's in your blind spot. Uh, if nice. if you get too close to somebody, it's it, it t- pretensions the brakes, pretensions your seatbelt. I mean, it's they have automatic parking now. I mean, they really we're getting very close to automated cars. I think this is this is it's. I think it's pretty exciting. I'm all for it. Yeah, we will be safer. Let's get to our questions of the day, starting with OC Hudson from Ocala, Florida. He's been watching the packets flow. <laughs> Sounds like a Crosby, Stills and Nash song. Hi, Steve. And security now, number 223. That was the SSL renegotiation bug that we talked about. You remarked, as one of our Q&As from last week asked, if I'm behind a router and I'm using XP, am I not behind two firewalls? It's like, yes, so unsolicited packets are not coming in from outside. Now, that was your response. Here's, here's his story. I have a Linksys WRT54G router between my computer and the ADSL connection. Windows XP is on my uh, is my operating system. It's running Sunbelt Software's personal firewall, SPF. We've talked about that before. In fact, I think you recommended it. The router's firewall is configured to block everything inbound. 
and I have configured the SPF firewall to log dropped packets. Now, here's the thing. During any given 24 hours, there are anywhere from as few as 50 to several hundred packets that transit the router firewall and are dropped by SPF. Most, but not quite all, are TCP packets sent by a website to which, which Firefox is currently on or which has been recently connected to a port on my computer that is now closed. Not, not port 80, apparently. SPF drops because the port is closed, but why the website sends them, who knows? Why they pass the router's firewall is unclear, but I assume it's probably because the packets have my computer's MAC address in the uh, header, right? Also, from time to time, an unidentified process attempts to send an outbound TCP packet from a closed port to some other computer on the Internet. Not always the same one. The destination computers have only been identified by their IP addresses. None has ever been identified as hosting a website. So I don't understand why you believe the two firewalls prevent any unsolicited packets from being received by the software and operating system running on a computer. It seems to me that just one firewall should all be all that's required. But according to my SPF, logging of dropped packets, uh, it, can, uh, it can be informative, sometimes mysterious. I wonder whether it might allow some to transit that it should have dropped. In other words, it, it, it should it be concerned by these results. Well, this is a great question because it it addresses sort of the boundary condition, which I have to re actually confess is the reality of at least what his router is doing which is is arguably what it was designed to do and probably maybe the best it can hmm. so he talks about during any given 24 hours there are anywhere from as from as few as 50 to several hundred packets that are dropped um uh, by that, that are that pass through his router to hit his Windows XP machine, where his SPF firewall logs them and drops them. So his question is: Okay, wait well, a minute. How are they getting there? Well, yeah. Um, what's going on? Right. Well, the the problem with NAT is we've discussed this extensively and done a couple episodes on it. Is that that the router sees an initial packet, typically a TCP SYN, uh, for the, the, the short for sequence packet, going outbound to a remote website, for example, or, or whatever you're making a TCP connection to. Typically websites, maybe a POP server, SMTP server, whatever. So it creates a, a, it, an entry in a table such that when the packet returns that it's able to say, oh, I remember seeing the sort of the corresponding packet go out there. So now a reply has come back. So that tells it to which computer behind the NAT on the private LAN to, to forward that packet. The problem is that routers have different sorts of logic for when to remove that table entry. For example, in the case of TCP connections, there is an orderly shutdown where the computer will send a, a fin for finish packet. Then the other end is supposed to send back an acknowledgement of that fin and then its own fin packet. And then the, the computer that initiated the shutdown performs a final acknowledgement 
of the other end's fin. So in the same way that there's this the so-called three-way handshake to establish a connection, there's a similar three-way handshake to, to gracefully shut down the connection. But in order for that to occur, that path has to remain open during the shutdown. That is, if the second the router saw the fin come in, if it like removed the entry from the table, that would cut off the computer from the inside so that it wasn't able and to be satisfied. And if the computer doesn't get an acknowledgement of its of its fin packet saying I'm trying to I'm trying to finish this connection, it'll keep sending those, which may recreate a table entry since that's an outgoing packet. So so the the truth of the way a router works is a little less elegant than the theory. And so what's happening with the WRT54G is it's deliberately leaving these tables, these these NAT mapping router table entries in place to make sure that both ends are able to satisfy themselves with saying goodbye to each other, essentially. Now, what can happen is that, for example, the far end might not see a an acknowledgement, so it'll send a second finish packet. But the the SPF firewall, which is is it can be rigorous when it sees the finish packet come in, it immediately terminates its permission for for, for for this connection. So essentially, the stateful firewall is tracking the state of the TCP connection. It is, is very clear and conscious about when the connection is shut down. So what happens is, as it's truly terminated, that firewall stops permitting packets in that conversation. Yet, the router which can't be that sure because it's not really the it's not the host of the connection the, the the computer where the firewall is is hosting the connection the router is just sort of passing stuff through it has to be more per- permissive to make sure that packets get through and are acknowledged so the firewall will emit sort of spurious logging of packets which and it's, i mean it's exactly what um, was described here. He's talking about websites. He was just visiting pages. He just pulled up places where Firefox is. And so there was a, a dialogue and an exchange. It ended, yet yet the, the border router continued to let some like remaining debris from sort of just the the end results of that connection through, whereas the firewall on the computer said, okay, we're done. And then if anything else comes in, it logs it as unsolicited. So that's, that's what's happening is there actually is a little kind of a gray area in this. And it's worth mentioning that UDP connections, like uh, the DNS typically uses, since they are, stateless connections that is there is no startup and shutdown router logic is is very different for udp if a udp packet goes out a timer 
is established, sometimes for a minute, sometimes for five, sometimes for 15. It depends upon the logic in the router. There is no notion with UDP protocol of an end of communication. So outgoing packets create these entries in router tables, which as packets continue, that entry is refreshed. And it's it's only after there's been no activity for some length of time that the timer expires and the router removes that from the route from its routing table. So I would expect if you were doing UDP things, you'd probably see even more debris. Hmm. So that's what's going on. That makes sense. And he yeah. shouldn't worry that uh, because that's happening that he might be missing other uh, packets that the that the uh, firewalls missing stuff. Well, the one that's a very good point. The one thing I was going to I was sort of chuckling when he said, "Oh, yeah, in 24 hours between 50, 50 and, and several hundred packets." <laughs> it's like, "Baby, that if you look nothing. at the outside of the router, right, right. you want to see something that is effectively blocking stuff, you know, monitor the outside of the router. It's 50 it's to 100 a minute." It's a storm yeah. out there. Yeah. So, so you know, the router's doing the right thing. It is really blocking unsolicited packets. It's just not blocking some of the tailings of conversations that you are having, right. which technically are solicited. Those were, those were dialogues you initiated inside the network. But again, again, yeah, on the outside, oh, it's bad. I like the way you said that. It is. It's just that it's the conversation trailing off. Yeah, it's <laughs> just like uh, it's just like. Uh, uh, <laughs> question two comes from Troubled. He is a regular in our chat room. In fact, he's in there right now from Ontario, Canada. He's worried about DNS port randomizations being negated by NAT. And you will only understand what that means if you've been listening to this show since episode one. <laughs> and I'm ashamed to say I kind of understood what it meant. Dear Steve, not ashamed, proud, proud. There you go. Dear Steve, I just finished listening to your Security Now episode for December 22nd. I heard you speak about weaknesses in routers and how you were concerned by the fact that consumer routers uh, seem to prefer to hijack DNS queries. We were saying, why are they doing DNS? It doesn't make any sense. While I think I understand the problem correctly, I'd like to hear your take on it. The specific problem is related to the fact that the recent DNS issue was fixed by making DNS queries use random outbound ports so as to make a um, MITM be forced to guess. Now I'm getting lost. Man For- in the middle. <laughs> Man in the middle. Okay. I've never seen it abbreviated. Okay. So uh, the specific problem related to the fact that the recent DNS issue, is that the bind problem that we're talking about, that, yep. that man in the middle bind problem, yep. was, was fixed in some cases by making um, DNS queries use random outbound ports so as to make a man in the middle attack uh, forced to guess the source port for the reply. In effect, you're giving an extra 16 bits of security, uh, giving approximately 32 bits minus, say, the 1,024 ports usually reserved for root. Now, the big question, what happens when you NAT the DNS on a device, as most or all home routers do, that sequentially maps outbound requests? seems to me you would lose that extra randomness since the router just changes them to be sequential now. While the original query port may have been, in fact, random, the new natted port is uh, is the part the attacker needs to guess, not the original port, right? Of course, there's still some guesswork for man-in-the-middle attack since he'd have to factor in the occasional port incrementing by standard system usage, which could be harder if it's a busy machine. But that's just a few, right? It's not at 16 bits worth. Thanks to the shows. Love them all. Troubled. That, that's a good question. You're going to have to explain what it means. I, I think I kind of get it. Yeah, it's a good question, and in fact, this exactly that did happen 
in many instances, shortly after port randomization was adopted by servers. Really? But it's not the consumer router. It's big iron NAT routers. It's your ISP's router. Exactly. So what happened was Bind was updated to issue its queries from random ports. But in the case that the DNS server, the ISP's DNS server, was behind their big iron NAT router, then that randomization was de-randomized. It was lost, and suddenly queries were going out into the public space from sequential ports. So So that effect had i mean had the 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 negative effect of 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 sort of reversing the security improvement of using a query source port randomization now the reason it's not a concern for the consumer that is who has a home nat router that is very likely doing the same thing is it's not their query to the ISP that we're concerned with spoofing. It's the ISP's DNS server's query out to get the IP from the internet. So so it is the case that if a man in the middle were monitoring a a customer, a, an ISP's customer's DNS queries, well, then all bets are off. I mean, a man in the middle yeah. wouldn't even need to intercept the traffic. He would see a query go out to the ISP, and they could immediately send back a spoofed IP as the answer. So, in fact, a D- DNS spoofing in an open network is a complete vulnerability. There's no protection for that. Okay. Um, so, And, in fact, it's funny, as I was thinking about this, I realized that that's obvious that's another obvious attack an even simpler attack in any open Wi-Fi network you know we've gotten ourselves all worked up about ARP spoofing and knitting ourselves into intercepting traffic and and pretending to be the gateway so that we get all the traffic going by well it's like wait a minute you know if if there were a a like a an evil Google uh, site then it would be trivial to see anybody sending a DNS query for Google.com out into the literally into the air, and um, and simply respond with a bad IP. Your then that user's computer would then march off in the wrong direction. So so spoofing DNS in a in an insecure local network is trivial, but but that's not where the vulnerability comes from that that where the the query source port randomness is is something that's a problem it's not the user's query that's being spoofed it's the the user's query goes to the ISP tick tap and, and that that's also by the way typically not over the public internet it's within the ISP's network you know you're in the you know you're behind if you're on a cable modem or 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 or, or DSL you you have a connection to your ISP, so none of that traffic to their DNS server is visible to the public. It's the DNS server's query outbound that is in, vo- in danger of being spoofed. And sure enough, a NAT router that's interposed there can de-randomize queries. So 
Uh, troubled is sort of right to be troubled, but sort of in a different place. <laughs> Don't be troubled, troubled. All right. Uh, question three from Peter Sinclair and Kat. Actually, before I get to that, he wants to talk about uh, disk drive heating. Because remember we were talking about putting them in the fridge and stuff. Uh, and he has uh, some suggestions. Oh, this is just, it's short but bizarre. Yeah. I, I heard this and I said, oh, okay, I we, can't wait. We, we got to do this. Yeah. So, people don't know that Steve, of course, is uh, among many other things that he's an expert in, is, is probably the foremost expert in how mechanical hard drives work because he had to be for Spinrite. So uh, I always go to him when I have questions about mechanical hard drives. But this Dave is my dude. This is an interesting one. Before we get to that, though, I do want to tell you about the folks at uh, Citrix. We love Citrix so much. They do those great products. Go to my PC, go to Assist Express, and, of course, go to Meeting. It is indispensable to the way you work today. I mean, we all have people we have to meet with in our jobs. Last thing you want to do is jump in your car and drive across town for a 10-minute meeting or fly across the country for a one-hour meeting, and I have done that. And there are times when you have to meet face-to-face, -face, but, boy, more often than not, a phone call with GoToMeeting running gets the job done. Here's the deal. You're on the phone. You say, I want to show you the drawing, the spreadsheets. Uh, let's work together. I've got a, if you're talking to a, cl a potential client, I, I have a PowerPoint presentation I'd like to show you. Here's what you do. You say, go to gotomeeting.com. You're on the phone with them. Go to gotomeeting.com. Click the join a meeting. Here's the meeting ID. That's all they have to do. Suddenly, they're seeing your computer on their screen. So you, they see the PowerPoint. You can even say, here's the spreadsheet. Let's work on it together and give them joint control. They can share their computer with you once you've established the connection. Uh, all with 128-bit SSL encryption, so it's completely private. Uh, couldn't be simpler to set up. In fact, you could do it right now for a month free. Start the new year right with GoToMeeting. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. You'll get 30 days of unlimited meeting free. That's what that's the thing about GoToMeeting. It's unlimited. As many meetings as you want, as long as you want. You never have to time them or count them. It just happens, and it's 49 bucks a month. Plus, that includes a phone and voice over IP conferencing. So it's a really good deal. Go to meeting.com slash security now. It's going to cost you nothing to try it. If you've got a meeting coming up, do me a favor. You, you don't really get this and how great it is until you try it. So just try it once. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We really appreciate Citrix support now in its fourth or fifth year. I can't remember for uh, security now in all of our shows. They are a great sponsor and they have a great product and we're glad to recommend it. So, all right, now we go to question three from Peter Sinclair. He's in Castle Hill, New, uh, New South Wales, Australia. And uh, he says, Dear Steve, I've been a Security Now regular since the start and a Spinrite owner as well. I heard your recent warnings about overheating in portable disk drives and recalled a paper I wrote. So this guy knows what he's talking about, too. Some years ago about disk drive heating effects. It was based on some IBM-sponsored research back in 1989. It turns out... Get this. Here's your here's a little math. <laughs> Heat generation within a disk drive is proportional to the cube of the rotational velocity and inversely to the fifth power of the diameter. I'd attach a copy, but I can't see how on this form. Keep up the good work in regards to Leo as well. Peter Sinclair, BAP, SC, MAP, SC, Bachelor's in Applied Science and Master's in Applied Science. Obviously an expert on this stuff. So the cube of the rotational velocity means it goes up very rapidly with the rotational velocity, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. Um, I wrote back and I said, Peter, I have got to see this paper. <laughs> Did you get it? He, he, rep he replied and I received it. 
but it was just this morning when I was preparing all of this, so I have not had a chance to review it, and, you know, Lord knows what the math looks like in there, so <laughs> it might have taken me a while to digest it in any I event. Love it. Oh, I, uh, love I it. will make a mention of it next week because, you know, the, the idea that heat generation is proportional to the cube of the rotational velocity and inversely to the fifth power of the diameter. I mean, if I understand that right, it means that that as the diameter gets larger to the fifth power, heat goes down, which, okay, I don't know why that would be. I mean, anyway, none of that seems intuitive to me. So I'm really curious. And of course, what I do know is that Seeking is a big deal, too, because one of the things, one of the ways that Spinrite tends to heat up drives is that it is, once it starts, it's it's going, it's in there going, I mean, it's going step by step by step. Every one of those little cylinder jumps is a is a burst of high energy because the head is accelerated very quickly and then immediately decelerated. So there's there's you know extra power being drawn and extra heat being generated by the, by the drive which is why you know spinrights also continuously monitoring the temperature of the drive and letting people know oops you know this thing's getting hot i mean it will work the drive harder than i mean sure being doing a big file copy is sort of the same you know because the head's jumping around all over the place writing to the disk um but you know spinrite will continue that for hours so um I can't wait to see what the paper says, and I will share it with our listeners. I just, I just got a big kick out of that. It's like, here's the equation for <laughs> heat generation. It. It's like, whoa, okay, love it. cool. Here's a question from, or uh, maybe a statement from uh, Daryl in Kansas. He declares, router DNS adds value. We were talking again about why these dumb little routers should bother with DNS. Hi, Stephen Leo. Just finished listening to episode 228 regarding why someone would use a router as the LAN DNS server. I smile when you brought the subject up. What you say is not useful actually can add a lot of value. In fact, I've locked down my router so that clients attaching to my LAN only use OpenDNS. Now, I know you've heard of OpenDNS. In fact, we talk about it all the time, OpenDNS.com. There's a big incentive for businesses and families to use OpenDNS to manage network traffic. Uh, in fact, I do use it at home and here uh, at Twit. He says, incidentally, when I ran your DNS benchmark tool, thank you for a great tool, OpenDNS fared very well. My my experience too. I think it was uh, came in second. Uh, I really haven't had any problems running this way, and the benefits, as I said, add much value. I can manage my network from any internet connection and see stats of what's been happening on it. And since I'm a family man, it's been a great tool to filter out the sites I don't want on my network. This guy could be quoting me, Daryl. Anyway, I thought I'd share at least one great reason to use your router as a DNS server. Thanks for a great podcast. I've listened to them all, and the best to you both. Well, that's not what we were talking about, of course, but um, we're. Uh, there were two two people brought up good points. Um, we've got one a little bit further. I think it's, in fact, the next one. But I wanted to reiterate this because Daryl's completely correct, certainly. If you configure the router to use specific servers rather than allowing it to just get whatever DNS servers the ISP serves to it through its DHCP query um, when it's logging on to the ISP's network then all of the machines within the network get the use of that DNS just as a function of them doing their own DHCP, DHCP query um, during the auto configuration of their network connection when, when they're booting up. 
you're you're right, Leo. You had said exactly the same thing. I just wanted to make sure that since I was so negative on this, that we sort of we were on not, the record. It's, it's, I, I, I'm I'm misunderstanding because this is not what the routers are doing. If they're doing DNS, this is just replacing the setting, just as you would on your computer. That's normally provided by the ISP but explicitly filling in OpenDNS's DNS server. But the DNS is not done by the router. It's done by OpenDNS. Correct. Correct. When we were and, talking and, about... And, that, and that's always the case. Unless yes. you have... In, in like, unless you're running your own bind DNS server, which is going out and resolving DNS for you, then the router is just passing this thing through. So you're right. It, all it's doing is giving, is, is giving you... An explicit um, DNS server instead of the one that would be provided by DHCP otherwise. Right. And it's worth mentioning that this is this is different than what our next question addresses and what I was talking about, because I was talking about the router passing its IP to everyone behind right. the LAN as their DNS server. See, I'm the DNS server. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of passing the the values you configure that is to say open dns on to all the machines behind the lab right right that was what i was understanding is that the, somehow the router when you were talking about last time actually two times ago that somehow the router was trying to preempt dns well and 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 so the question is i mean if, if you think about it there are two aspects to this there's what dns is configured for the machine's on the LAN right. behind the router, right, and 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 what DNS the router itself is using is it is it accepting DNS servers from the ISP, which are almost certainly not going to be open DNS, or have you or someone like Daryl gone in and said, I want my whole network to use open DNS because it's better DNS. It gives me all these extra features, filtering and monitoring and and you know web safety and so forth. Okay. Question six, Tom Zaruka, he's writing from San Diego, but living in Michigan. That's just what he says. He has another reason for routers to proxy DNS. Steve, the router has to provide your computer with something in the DHCP field, uh, DHCP field for DNS when you plug it in. Uh, and in some situations, this could be before it has received its own main address by doing the DHCP query out to the ISP. For instance, maybe you have to configure it with a password or something else. So what does it do? Well, it can't put in an entry for DNS it doesn't have, so it simply implements a forwarding proxy. This makes sense. Now I'm understanding. Yes. If this is what's going on, this makes sense. It implements a forwarding proxy when the WAN is configured and or comes up and the router then gets the real DNS from the DHCP server out there in the, in the world, it'll, it, it can use it. But if the router doesn't yet know what to put into the DH, DNS field for the DHCP request, it needs to send something in that field to the local computer saying, give me a lease. I mean, what should it do? How would you solve this? Build a router that is plug and play that doesn't require anyone to manually configure any DNS by telling the computers, just use me as DNS. I'll give you the new DNS when I find out. And then they proxy that on. That makes so sense. So is that what's happening? Well, so yes. So let's back up a little bit. Um, you know, I've, I've used in the last two questions this DHCP. Um, that's that's the protocol um, that um, that is used for auto configuration of network connections. It's 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 a it's a widely used, universally understood protocol. It's it's when 
when, for example, in Windows users are on Macs where there's this, you know, obtain an IP address automatically or, you know, obtain configuration from the network, what happens is any machine on a network can make a broadcast. It, it, so it, it powers up. It knows nothing I mean, nothing about the network. No gateway IP. It doesn't know what network it's on. It doesn't know if it's a 192.168 or if it's a 10 dot or a 172 dot. I mean, nothing. What it's able to do is simply send a broadcast that says, hi there, um, is there a DHCP server available that uh, wants to tell me some stuff? And there, And so a router, a home network router is among many other things a DHCP server. The, the on so the computer on the LAN turns on, the DHCP server hears that cry for help and says, Yeah, here I am. Uh what do you need? Um <laughs> in the process it, it it gives its IP to the computer. The computer then says, Oh, here's all the stuff I don't know. And basically it's sort of a it's it's very closely related to DNS but it can provide other information than just than just look up IP addresses. Essentially, it says, I don't know anything. Tell me what I need right. to be a citizen on the LAN. And so it receives the, the IP of the gateway, the, the, the DNS servers that, it has been, that it's been told to be configured for. It even gets its own IP. The DHCP server assigns them sequentially or in some cases – the since all of this traffic will on a LAN will have a MAC address identifying the adapter, which is to say the computer on the LAN, it's possible to configure the router to always give a certain machine a certain IP rather than just sort of have them having them randomly assigned. And in fact, one of the things that machines can do is say, I'd like an IP, and last time I had this one. And so that helps the IP addresses to be relatively static. That is, you're not guaranteed that the DHCP server will give you the same one. But if all the citizens on the LAN suggest what they had before, then generally as they come and go or powered up and powered down, they'll be reissued the same IP. Now, this exact same thing happens with the router and the ISP. So... When the router is powered up and sees that it's got a connection on its WAN side, not on the, inter- on, on the internal, on the LAN side, it's the DHCP server. Facing the ISP, it's a DHCP client. So it does the same thing to the ISP's network that, that we do to it on our LAN. That is, it sends out a broadcast, hi there. I seem to be on. Uh, fill me up with the specifics of of you know how I should be configured. The ISP maintains a big iron DHCP server. Here's the query and provides all of the connection information to the router. So what? So what? Tom has said, and and the the point he makes I think is a very good one, is that. There are situations like with like with dial-up um, ADSL, where you're making where you've got your LAN connected to the router, 
which may not yet be connected to the ISP. You know, I'm sort of old school, and I understand how these things work. So I'm always plugging my router in to a cable modem or to the DSL router or whatever and sort of letting it get going and stabilize and all that because I understand that it needs to get all of its connection stuff from the ISP before it knows what to give to the network. Well, clearly, as as these connections to the ISPs have evolved and become less static, where you do have um, DSL connections which are being established and broken, exactly as Tom says, it could be the case that, they could, that there are computers on the LAN that connect to the router before it connects to the ISP. They're, they ask for all their numbers to be filled in, including DNS. The router doesn't have them. It, you know, it, it's got its own gateway address, so it knows to tell everybody on the LAN, hey, I'm your gateway, but it can't pass through any DNS addresses because it doesn't know them yet. So what it does is it, is it proxies for the ISP's DNS, just saying, don't worry, everybody, just use me. I'm in you, control here. I, I'll take care of your DNS queries uh, as soon as I figure out who I should ask. <laughs> right. And that, so That makes sense now. It absolutely yeah. does make sense. Yeah, it's almost a necessity that they had to do that. Yep. It does make sense. So thank you, Tom. Um, that, you know, that, that explains why this is being done now. And it would be interesting to see whether it's done as a function of the order in which these things turn on. For example, if the router does have an established set of addresses and you then connect to it, does it pass the DNS through or does it always proxy whether it knows DNS or not, it could be that it's smart and it's dynamic. That's not something I even looked at before. Yeah, but but you know, it's a great point. Question six: Jeffrey Hilgers with the U.S. Navy Bagram Air Force Base, Afghanistan. Wow, Jeffrey, we salute you and your service to the country. Yep. Thank you. He's got a great tip about Microsoft's Patch Tuesday, Steve. In episode two two six, you mentioned uh, in the beginning about where people can go to read about what was released on every Patch Tuesday for Microsoft. I wanted to pass along that EI Digital Security, which is, by the way, a great, I think they do great work. Yes. Uh, every uh, patch, the day after Patch Tuesday, releases a very nice bulletin summary of what was released the day before. They also give information on the vulnerability itself and links to Microsoft's information uh, on it. You can view these bulletins at eeye.com slash resources or just click the res if actually the easiest thing to do probably is to go to the ei website in the menu there you'll see the resources menu item you'll see security center under that and then patch tuesday under security center so it's it's right off the front page eeye.com the resources menu item security center and patch tuesday that's really a great uh, feature of uh, of ei i'm glad that they do that yeah, I looked at the page, and you know, it's a little self-serving. They're saying, of course, oh, we well, knew you know. about this years ago, <laughs> <laughs> and all of the all of our our all of our users who are using right. such and such our product, um, they've always been protected from this preemptively because you know our Blink technology blinked out. I, I never asked you what you thought about Blink. Um, it's free, uh, right? 
It, it, it is personal. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and Mark ended up leaving EI. He's no longer with EI. He wandered off to oh, pursue oh, okay. other things. Um, and we, we've corresponded a little bit since. Um, I think that the there are there are people using it who are very happy with it. There are other people who sort of still feel more comfortable with a traditional pattern based. Um, intrusion detection approach rather than the behavior-based approach that that Blink uses. So it's sort of another, you know, another goodie for the arsenal. Um, I I wanted I mentioned this because I've been aware of this page but never talked about it before. And it is nice. It they do a little more open the kimono sort of job of telling the you know more detail and more interesting stuff. You know, Microsoft, you could argue, has a little bit of a bias toward minimizing these problems. Like, you know, I read that one um, issue about the RPC vulnerability where they said, oh, this it's could not this, might, happen. this could turn into a worm, you know, and it's, it's called Conficker and it's the curse of the Internet. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Let's not be hasty here. <laughs> yeah, we'll it's, it's always that. true. Everybody has their own, you know, axe to grind. And EI has kind of the opposite side of it, which is, you know, uh, it's a it's a it's dangerous out there and use our tool. And yeah, Microsoft's, Microsoft's yes. position is it's not dangerous out there. Don't worry. And somewhere in the middle is the truth. But you probably should read both. Right. And even Microsoft's own researchers are saying, ah, oh, don't worry about any of this stuff. Remember the <laughs> from, from last week the, the the economics of ignoring yeah. Yeah. advice. Tim Wells in Marietta, Ohio, addresses Firefox update issues. Steve, you mentioned in episode two two eight a couple of weeks back that Elaine, your transcriptionist, had trouble upgrading to three five six. By the way, I think we're at three five seven as we record this. Could be three five eight by the time you hear this. I too encountered issues upgrading to three five six of Firefox on my netbook. Here's a story. I needed to go to a website. So I grabbed my netbook, clicked on Firefox. Firefox pops up, set, pops up, says it's updating. So I impatiently wait for my netbook uh, to uh, update. Uh, then it crashes. And then I couldn't get into Firefox at all. Every time I clicked the Firefox icon, I'd get Mozilla Firefox has encountered a problem, needs to close. So I went to my desktop computer, downloaded Firefox 356 directly from Mozilla, the full thing, not the patch. And manually installed it on the netbook, and this fixed the problem. Thanks for the wonderful podcast heard every episode. So I wanted to just pass this on for Elaine's sake. I didn't ever follow up with her to see if she's fixed the problem, but it's been my experience that within a sufficiently large audience, what happens to one person will happen mm-hmm. invariably to many, many more. Mm-hmm. So if any of our other listeners, it sounds like there was just a little glitch of some sort in the auto-update uh, you know, edition of Firefox, but that downloading the whole thing and installing it over what you had works fine and fixes the problem. So, Elaine, if you're listening, well, I don't know who you are because you're typing this right now, and you've just <laughs> Hi, had to type. You'd have to type all of this and this and this too, and even this <laughs> and that too. Yeah, <laughs> that's mean. And uh, everybody else that this happened to. <laughs> Uh, anytime, and I said this two weeks ago, anytime you install something, a certain percentage of people are going to have problems just from the install because it goes bad. You know, you know, cosmic ray hits it or whatever, and it goes bad. It's impossible. I don't know how Microsoft does as good a job as they do or Mozilla and everybody else yeah, for that matter. It's really remarkable, giving the hundreds of millions of people who are installing this stuff. Yeah. Zek in Colorado is next. He uh, asks about PayPal investigating small purchases as money laundering. Oh, boy. 
I sell a fair amount on Etsy, which is a handmade online marketplace, to which I give two thumbs up, by the way. Etsy's great. Payment method of choice, PayPal. Today, I had a $9 transaction held pending an investigation by PayPal, even though everything appears to be legit, and I even communicated with the buyer. I couldn't believe a $9 transaction would set off PayPal's sirens, so I asked around. One friend said their friend had a bunch of small deposits from writing work withheld, investigated, and ultimately not returned to her because PayPal thought she was laundering money. So what's up? All I do are small transactions with my business. Are they going to keep doing this to me? Keep up the good work. So this sort of hit me at an interesting time. I'm not sure why I did, but during the Christmas holidays, during, while I was at Starbucks for a couple hours from 5 a.m. until my family woke up and I rejoined them for for breakfast, I happened to read a lengthy really heartfelt, sad story from a software developer who had really been raked over the coals by PayPal. Mm. And we've never really talked about this side of it. Um, you know, I'm an avid PayPal user as an eBayer who uses PayPal to get money to to eBay merchants. And I, I, I love using PayPal when it's available because it does prevent having to disclose my credit card information to, you know, any sites that offer PayPal. So from a from a individual user standpoint, it's I well it's a great thing and I've never had a problem. Apparently though, they are so popular that PayPal is a huge target for fraud. And you know, who does that surprise? None of our listeners, I'm sure. The problem is that there's there's all kinds of automated fraud protection which appears to be hair triggered now i don't know in zex's case what it was that set paypal off in the case of the blog that i read um a software publisher wanted to do a limited time bundle with some other publishers and so they 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 agreed in in over email they were going to you know they were going to be in charge of of hosting it they were a paypal merchant everything was going along the offer worked really well which pushed their revenues out of the normal profile that it had that had been established with paypal and set off warning bells locked the money prevented people from purchasing with them and was and then, you know, PayPal is apparently extremely difficult to deal with. Again, it's, I, I, you know, it's not a business I'm in or I want to be in. So I don't want to be overly critical of PayPal. I think, you know, they're offering a service. We've talked about, you know, we'd like to see them have better competition so that they, they do a better job. The, for what it's worth, the Internet is full of horror stories of you know merchants you know small merchants really being unhappy with their um interaction with PayPal I know that there are plenty of merchants that have never had a problem um sometimes I think about for myself gee wouldn't it be nice to offer our customers a PayPal button but then I remember gee it's not robust it's not something I could count on if I did a new version of of you know, like like a new product release, then there was going to be an upgrade. There would be a flood of retail sales, 
And, you know, it would set off all kinds of alarm bells. And what I've seen from what I've read is merchants have no leverage at all. Basically, you're just out of luck. I transfer anytime we get a bulk of money in there. Actually, PayPal is now my salary. So anytime we get a bunch of money in there, we transfer it out uh, because we don't want it to ever get locked up. Yes. So we're pretty assiduous about getting the money out of there, getting the money out of there, getting the money out of there. But PayPal, you know, we changed the way the donations or the contributions, I should say, because it's not a nonprofit the work. That's how that's my entire salary. So whatever people donate goes to me. Now, all the advertising money goes to uh, the company, to hosts, company, salaries and all that stuff. I'm the only one who's paid out of PayPal. It's working pretty well. People have been very generous. Yeah. We are uh, going to take a break, come back with a good question. Should I pay for more than 128-bit encryption and uh, some information about predators. Um, yes, unmanned uh, information aircraft. from some pilots of UAV predators. A predator pilot yep. checks in. But before we do that, I do want to mention our it's one of our, our first sponsors on the network, and they're still with us, the great folks at Astaro. The Astaro Security Gateway, we, we've talked about it so many times. It's a must-have UTM. If you're in business, you know you have to have a unified threat management solution. You know, I hope you're not cobbling together you know, software and consumer-grade routers to protect your business. You need something a little more robust. And the Astaro Security Gateway is it. It's affordable, but you get the best of breed in commercial and open-source software protecting you. Providing services you're going to want anyway. For a small or medium business, there is no better protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers. You get complete VPN capabilities, including VPN over SSL, which is great. The boss will like that. Very easy for uh, him or her to use. Of course, you get all the protocols you like, like IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling. But the SSL is nice, very sweet. You get, of course, intrusion protection. Several kinds of content filtering. You can completely control what sites they see, but also instant messaging, peer-to-peer. Of course, the state-of-the-art, stateful packet inspection, buzzword-compliant, industrial-strength firewall. But it's all in an easy-to-use, high-performance, single appliance, which you can try right now free in your business. If you want to get in a Star Security Gateway demo, go call them, 877-4-ASTARO. Out of the U.S., visit ASTARO.com. There is, for uh, for our listeners who are not running a business, who want to just try the Astaro Security Gateway, there's a download. You can get a VMware appliance, put it on your own uh, beige box. You can download the full software. It's really nice. And they give you now uh, complete, you know, the subscriptions, everything. Astaro up-to-date, which they used to charge for. Uh, it's just limited to, in fact, they've even upped the limits of the IP addresses and the concurrent users. So it really is a great way to demo it. But if you're in a business, they'll they'll send you the, uh, the incredible Starro Gateway free. You could try it out right now in your business. A demo, not free forever. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. Take a look at the Astaro Command Center too. Ooh, it is so sweet if you have multiple Astaro Gateways. Uh, from a single dashboard, you control them. You see a world map. You can monitor them. You coordinate them, maintain them, set up, update. It is so sweet. These guys know what they're doing. It's the best out there. You give it a try. A-S-T-A-R-O.com. We thank Astaro for their multi-year support of Security Now, our very first sponsor on the Twit Network. Thanks, Astaro. Uh, on to question nine from Poojan Wah in Chicago, Illinois. He wonders, should I be paying more for uh, paying for more than 128-bit encryption? He says, there's a website. We'll name names. Crashplan.com. It allows one to do off-site backups to a friend. Peer-to-peer. Well, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. 
I'd like to do this with my in-laws, but I'm wondering if their free offering of 128-bit blowfish is enough. I trust my in-laws to safeguard the data at their end, but I'm wondering about the data in transit. For a $60 license, you can get 448-bit blowfish. Is it worth it, or is 128-bit enough? It's a great question. And the answer is 128 bits is more than more enough. More than enough, yeah. We're talking symmetric encryption. So um, it's state-of-the-art. Blowfish was designed, as we know, by... Uh, Bruce Schneier. Um, Bruce Schneier, exactly. And it is a, it's, a, it's a cipher which has withstood the test of time, very conservatively designed, um, well-analyzed. Uh, it's... You know, it, it's it's a very good choice. And this is clearly these guys saying, well, we want to give, we want to hook people on this. We want to give yeah. free stuff. We want to somehow add value beyond what's free. So we're going to, you know, give them 448-bit bluefish. Well, okay, you absolutely do not need it. This is so, cool, though, because uh, they can give it to you free because they're not providing the storage. It just it's like Hamachi or something connecting to another server. Exactly. They're they're providing transit and in fact I'm now what's not clear is whether the 128 bit encryption is one time key or a persistent key. So so the the, the reason that um Poojan's question sort of says hey, I'm only concerned about it, about this in transit is I'm assuming the key is generated with some sort of key handshake pseudo randomly and and used in a session but probably another key is used next time you connect that's the only sane way to do it in which case 128 bits is just fine now you could also argue that 128 bits is fine forever which is probably the case um so again there's just no reason to pay extra money for extra bits of 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 key length on a really good symmetric cipher like Blowfish. 128 bits is fine. I'm going to have to take a look at this. That's an interesting solution. Hmm. Our last question comes from Matt Ridley. He's in uh, Kaukauna, Wisconsin. I think I just pronounced that the Hawaiian way. Uh, probably not how they pronounce it in Wisconsin. Maybe Kaukauna. He wants some info about, or adds some info about the uh, UAV predators. Hey, I just listened to the last episode this morning on my way to work. Want to let you know more details about the predator UAV news. Two of the guys in an online community that we have shared for eight years or so fly UAVs. That's, what is it, unmanned aer aerial vehicle. Aerial vehicle, and have at least had some experience with the predator. Uh, those drones we use heavily in uh, Afghanistan and Iran. Right. According to them, after this came out, the follow is the current setup. Following is the current setup. Controls are encrypted, as you mentioned. Mission mode cameras are encrypted during flight. This was the issue was, can people see the camera output? The unencrypted videos in question are usually from takeoff, landing, and refueling. The reason being, according to them, the pilots, uh, is that the video timing lag caused from encryption decryption ah, gives them so much latency yeah. That it's not safe during takeoff, landing, and refueling. Well, it, duh, of course, that makes sense. Once the UAVs are aloft, real-time video feedback is less critical, so encryption is engaged. According to them, in 2012, this video will become encrypted as well. That makes perfect sense. It really does. Now, there are many, again, we don't, no one that I've run across 
sounds to me like they're an absolute authority. So there's lots of people saying... I'm sure the people who know don't talk. Exactly. So, I mean, but this ex- this, this explanation makes sense, yeah. except that uh, encryption and decryption should be now. really fast. Yeah. Um, you know, symmetric encryption, decryption doesn't take any time unless we're dealing with hardware that is so old which really could be the case. You know, we right. run across that from time to time too, that, that we're seeing really old hardware, which is just, it's, you know, it can't do any more than it was designed to. So I, I, I really, from a, from a theoretical standpoint, though, I love this idea that they do not encrypt takeoff landings and refuelings where they really need for their own piloting controls, you know, real time video feedback. But once they're in the air, that's less critical, so they click on encryption, get some lag, but you know, but but have the the security that they would hope these systems would have. So that was cool. Thank you, Matt, for sharing that. It kind of makes sense because even if it's you know a millisecond of lag, I mean, if it's very minor lag on a critical thing, that you really want feel like the controls are real time, right? Oh well, I mean, any video game player knows. Yeah. You know, that if you've got lag between your controls and what you see, it's like, oh, this is just awful compared to it being really instantaneous. Well, there you go. Twelve, or, I'm sorry, 10 questions, good and true, from our listeners. If you have a question for Steve, go to grc.com slash feedback and leave that question for him. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And we answer questions every other show. Uh, GRC, when you're there, by the way, is a great resource. Uh, 16 kilobit versions of the show. Uh, Steve makes those available for easy download. We don't. He does, which is I really appreciate your doing that, Steve. He also pays for transcription, another great benefit to the community. Um, and gives away a ton of great free software like Wismo, Decombobulator, Shoot the Messenger, that DNS uh, uh, you know, te- uh, benchmark tool. It's more and more all the time. Perfect Paper Passwords. Uh, GRC, it stands for Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. There's one thing there that you pay for, and I highly recommend you do, not just to support Steve, because, but because you need it. It's SpinRight, which is the absolutely, without question, the one, the only, the best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. If you're not using SpinRight, you're not getting the most out of your hard drives. We SpinRight every drive before we put it into service. It's a must-have. GRC.com. Steve, thank you. Welcome to Always the new a pleasure. decade. <laughs> um, we're, you know, as our listeners are hearing this, you're playing in Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show. Oh, thanks for reminding me. Please go to live.twit.tv for our live coverage and twit.tv for the downloads of all. We're, we're going to give you wall-to-wall coverage of the Consumer Electronics Show. Eight. Yeah. Eight. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll be back next week in studio to talk uh, again about security. Episode 231 next week. I'll talk to you then, Leo. Thank you, Steve. Security now.